0: The following presentation was produced by the Buddhist Society of Victoria. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au Okay, so let's start off with the uh, uh, the suttas, uh, so now we're going to uh, look at basically what is the word of the Buddha, uh, and this is going to be the uh, theme for the rest of this retreat, uh, and then to tie that in with the practice, with meditation, and all of these kind of things. Uh, And uh, to start out I just want to maybe say just a little bit, I do this on every retreat just to make it very clear, especially for those of you who are here uh, for the first time, uh, uh, what we mean by the word of the Buddha, why it matters, uh, and how we can actually know uh, what is the word of the Buddha and what is not the word of the Buddha, how do we make a distinction between these things, and this is a very important part, to appreciate that we actually do have the word of the Buddha even in the present day, and uh, the uh, the way we can actually know what the word of the Buddha is, uh, yeah, it may not be. Uh, it you may think that it is obvious that we know what the word of the Buddha is, but it's far from obvious. Uh, it is not obvious because we have two and a half thousand years of Buddhist history, uh, and in that two and a half thousand years, there's been lots of developments, lots of different schools coming out, uh, lots of different texts being. Uh, uh, authored, and uh, coming into existence, uh, and to actually to be able to find out what is the word of the Buddha from this mass of texts, yeah, text in Chinese translation, text, text in Pali, in Sanskrit, in Tibetan, now in English translation, uh, you have it as this enormous mass of texts. So how do we whittle it down to what the Buddha himself taught uh, two and a half thousand years ago? Do we even know what the Buddha taught? Uh, And the answer is that we probably do know roughly uh, what the Buddha taught. And the way to know that uh, is to, there's many different approaches to know this, uh, but one of them is to see what all the various schools of Buddhism have in common. uh, And that common denominator that you find between all the different schools, uh, that is most likely to be, be the word of the Buddha, because... All the various schools, they stem from one source. Everything goes back to something which, you know, it it all kind of looks back to the Buddha in a sense. So whatever they have in common, that is the common root that they're all built upon later on. And then all the texts that are divergent in the various schools, they're the texts that were then made up a long time after the Buddha. So this is one very pragmatic and practical way of deciding what is the word of the Buddha. There's much more to it than that. You can use all kinds of linguistic criteria to see what are the core ideas of Buddhism, what are the developments of the Buddhist language over time, and all of these kind of things. And all of these various criteria that you use that point to the same conclusion. And the conclusion is that the word of the Buddha is found in what we now call the four Nikayas in Pali. Yeah, four Nikayas being the uh, long discourse of the Buddha, the middle length discourse of the Buddha, the connected discourses of the Buddha, and the numerical discourses of the Buddha. And that is essentially, it's a little bit more than that, uh, but that's essentially what the teachings of the Buddha are. Huh? Yeah, and so. Uh, And it's not only found in the Pali Suttas. uh, You also find some of these teachings in the Chinese translation as well. They're known as the Agamas in the Sanskrit language. uh, And the Agama is the word used in the Chinese texts as well. uh, uh, So they're found kind of broadly. And then you can do comparative studies and compare them with each other. uh, And then you come very close to what what must have been the word of the Buddha. It's important to uh, realize, though, that this is not verbatim the word of the Buddha. The Buddha didn't say these things exactly in this particular way. And uh, obviously, after two and a half thousand years, these texts have been edited, they have been, you know, kind of made, uh, they have been optimized for memorization, if you like, because in the early days these texts were transmitted orally from one generation to the next one. Uh, and so they're not, it's not verbatim, the word of the Buddha. And some things have probably been lost yeah, over the course of time. But the essential ideas that you find in there, the Four Noble Truths, the Noble Eightfold Path, Dependent Origination, and the 37 Bodhipakya Dhammas, yeah, the 37 Aids to Awakening, what we're going to have a look at now, all of that is essentially the way it was at the time of the Buddha. So we have the teachings of the Buddha. Isn't that kind of cool? yeah i it's it's kind of astonishing when you think about it for two and a half thousand years uh yeah it's kind of it's uh, sounds like a long long period of time uh, and we still have these teachings uh, of this uh, greatest spiritual genius that has existed in human history uh, they're still available to us uh, and that's kind of a- astonishing really uh. so when you read these teachings uh, and this is one of the things that I always like to point out to people uh, when you hear these suttas uh, you are in the presence of the Buddha huh? Yeah, this is what he taught people. This is what he said. And when he taught these things, he he thought about people in general, not just about the people of his generation, not just about people in Indian culture, but in people in general around the world, different cultures, different times. And when you start to think about the teachings like that, they become much more alive, much more real, because these teachings are for us as they are for anyone else. Coming straight from the Buddha. So, that is uh, uh, just a little bit of uh, uh, background. I, you can, we can go into much more details about this. And if you're interested, there's a book called The uh, Authenticity of the Early Buddhist Texts uh, that is available online. Uh, and you can have a look at that book. It's a very, very nice little book. Uh, I, was, I, I have to admit, I was part of the uh, people who wrote that book, so that's why I think it's really nice. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Myself and another monk called Ajahn Sujato, who actually wrote that, uh, wrote that book. Yeah. But uh, uh, it is basically uh, uh, about this particular topic, yeah? and it was public, published by an academic publisher, so it is quite a, it is you know it has a high standard of uh, of uh, content to it, uh, gone through the peer review process and that sort of thing. Yeah? Uh, so please have a look at that, and if you have more questions about this, there's always the chance to uh, ask questions. Uh, so you can write those down, uh, and in the evening I will attempt to answer any questions that you you may have. Uh, uh, it should be on the back table there somewhere, there should be some paper and things So, so now let's have a look at uh, <coughs> some of the suttas that I was just talking about. Uh, and uh, so <coughs> uh, the main theme for this retreat is uh, what is called the 37 aids to awakening, the 37 bodhi pakya dhamma in the Pali language. And uh, this is just one particular angle uh, to approach uh, the suttas and to think about the path to awakening. And I like to kind of look at things from a slightly different angle every time, if I can, uh, just to kind of broaden out the perspective a little bit. The first two sutta uh, extracts here, they are uh, about these 37 in general. So they kind of uh, uh, talk about them, what they mean and what they, what the purpose of these 37 are on the Buddhist path. So this is just, again, a little bit more by way of background information. here. Well, the first one here is called, is from the Diganikaya 29. Diganikaya meaning the long discourses of the Buddha. And this is here translated as the delightful discourse. This means the you know, the Pasadika Sutta in Pali. And uh, this sutta is interesting because it has a lot of uh, kind of more like historical or background information, talking about the Dhamma from a general perspective rather than uh, giving so many specific teachings. So this is what this sutta has to say. It was Uddhaka Ramaputta who used to say, he sees but he does not see. here. What is it that seeing one does not see? You can see the blade of a well-sharpened razor but not its edge. This is what he meant by saying he sees but does not see. He spoke with in reference to a low, common, worldly ignoble thing of no uh, of no meaning, a mere razor. So uh, uh, here we have uh, one of the ancient sages of India, Udaka Ramaputta. I don't know if you recognise that name. Does anyone here recognise that name? Yeah, you do recognize, yeah, from the path to awakening, yeah, when the Buddha was practicing and he met the two spirits, exactly, as the one. Uh. So the two, Uddhaka Ramaputta and Alara Kalama, were two of the teachers of the Buddha before he became the Buddha, when he was the Buddha-to-be. Uh. And here he kind of uh, appears again, yeah, so this is kind of, uh, already it's a bit interesting that he appears in different places like this. Uh. Uh, and of course what that means is that when they appear in different places in the suttas, uh, and they are talked about in different contexts, it means that these are likely to be real historical people. Uh, that's why uh, they were talked about uh, you know, in general just like <coughs> the Buddha himself and his main disciples uh, were real historical people, because they are talked about very broadly in the suttas. Uh, the same is true of Uddaka Ramaputta. Uh, so when you read uh, the story of the Buddha's awakening, uh, and you uh, see all the things that the Buddha was up to before he became awakened, which is a very interesting story, uh, and maybe we can talk a bit more about that later on, uh, then <clears throat> one of the people that he met uh, and one of his early teachers uh, was this particular person, uh, who then seems to have been a real uh, uh, a real uh, historical person, uh, which uh, is uh, makes the whole thing come alive in a very different way once you realize that. Uh, but uh, just because he was a real historical person and just because he, he was a teacher of the Buddha uh, doesn't mean that he had any profound insight. Uh, and here you can see the Buddha is sort of uh, uh, pointing out that his insight wasn't all that profound. Yeah? He was talking about a mere razor, but surely this can be understood in a more profound way rather than just as a mere razor. You see, but you don't see. What does this mean from a Dhamma point of view is what the Buddha is going to talk about next uh, and this uh, re- this um, sentence here, at the very, very bottom there, it is a low, uh, vulgar, is a gamma, like ordinary or common, uh, uh, worldly, potujana, uh, uh, of the ordinary person, uh, ignoble thing of no spiritual significance. This is atta, uh, sanghita, uh, which means doesn't have any connection with anything beneficial uh, or any <coughs> real aim or goal. This is a standard sentence that you find in the suttas uh, that talks about anything which is not really connected with the spiritual life uh. so for example when the buddha talks about the sensual world uh, yeah the world of the five senses uh, this is how he describes it uh, because it doesn't actually uh, ultimately it doesn't lead to anything really meaningful or anything very useful uh. and here uh, he's using the same thing to talk about a uh, Razor, because a razor really is part of that sensual world. Uh, that's what, the uh, sensual world is anything you experience through the five senses. Uh, so what does it mean then? How does the Buddha look at this? And this is what is, uh, comes up next here. Uh, but if one were to use that expression properly, uh, he sees but he does not see, it would be like this. Uh, what he sees is a spiritual life uh, which is a, a fully complete uh, and uh, pure, uh, fully complete, and and endowed with all factors, uh, uh, with nothing lacking and nothing superfluous, uh, well proclaimed in its uh, uh, completeness. Uh, If we were to deduct anything from it, thinking in this way, it will be more pure, he does not see it. And if we were to add anything to it, thinking in this way, it will be more complete, uh, then he does not see it. That is the meaning of the saying: He does not he sees, but does not see Therefore, Chunda, if anyone were to refer to any spiritual life as being fully, having all aspects and being fully complete, it is this holy life or this spiritual life that they would be describing here. So here, the Buddha is making a statement about the dhamma: Yeah, seeing but not seeing. Uh, and he's saying that the Dhamma of the Buddha is complete as it is. There's uh, no need to add anything to it. Uh, there's nothing uh, to be added. There's nothing to be subtracted. Uh, what you have is, the, uh, is a full path to awakening. Uh, you need everything the Buddha talks about, uh, and but you don't actually need anything else more than that. Uh, this is what he's saying here. Uh, and this is, I think, a very interesting and a very important statement by the Buddha. And... Uh, uh, The reason why this is so interesting is because we tend in Buddhist circles, uh, and this is Buddhist circles around the world, uh, to go against this very simple um, idea that the Buddha is expressing here. Uh, Very often we think that we need additional things apart from the word of the Buddha. Uh, Very often you will hear people learning all kinds of things uh, that have nothing to do with the suttas, uh, and they think that this is essential to actually be able to understand the teachings properly. this is so common, yeah. And uh, to give the obvious example, which is this uh, super, super duper obvious, uh, but which uh, is um, uh, still, is still, uh, I would consider it a problem, uh, is the Abhidhamma. For example, the Abhidhamma is something that was developed uh, over the centuries after the Buddha passed away. It is not part of the most earliest Buddhist teachings. It is not part of the Four Nikayas, uh, and yet the Abhidhamma has become to has come to be the thing. Uh, that people consider even more important than the Dhamma itself. The Abhidhamma is the final expression of the word of the Buddha, with nothing comp- nothing missing and nothing lacking. That is the kind of thing that you will often hear about the Abhidhamma Pitaka. But actually, it is actually the other way around. It is the suttas that are complete and nothing is missing. Yeah? And the Abhidhamma is a later expansion, a later systematization of those suttas. And uh, for that reason, it is actually much less important than the suttas. And it's a very important thing, because, uh, again, as you travel around the Buddhist world, uh, it is so common for people to think that the Abhidhamma actually is more important than the suttas. This is the ultimate expression of the word of the Buddha. And the suttas, they're just like a preliminary expression. Yeah, So kind of putting down the suttas a little bit uh, and elevating the Abhidhamma, when actually it should be the other way around. Uh. I just remember when I went to, uh, I went to KL, that was last year, uh, uh, in Malaysia, and uh, uh, I was teaching a retreat there because uh, there's a lot of demand for retreats everywhere these days, uh, and I was teaching a retreat there, and during the retreat, one of the days, they had this Abhidhamma class coming in. So they said to me, yeah, you just stay in your room and you let those people kind of do the Abhidhamma class. Yeah? The problem was my room was next door to the Abhidhamma class. So. <laughs> Yeah, and the Abhidhamma classes are very loud. They've got microphones, big speakers, not like here. Here the speaker is kind of reasonable, but really big speakers, full volume, and then blaring out the Abhidhamma. And many more people came to the Abhidhamma class than came to my retreat. Yeah, <laughs> I was really offended by that. I thought, gee, <laughs> these people they have no kind of you know, real appreciation of the sutta. But this, was, this is typical of how things are in the kind of modern world. Yeah? People come to these Abhidhamma classes, uh, and they think this is what really matters. Uh, and I was trying to have a rest, trying to kind of get ready for the next talk, because sometimes they really squeeze you dry on these retreats. Uh, and, uh, but, you know, <laughs> the Abhidhamma was more important than me getting a rest. So the Abhidhamma was what actually tended to happen. Uh, after that, uh, I wanted to go in and say, hey, listen guys, yeah, forget about this. Yeah, What do you want to hear? Come to my retreat instead. Uh, but you can't really do that. You have to kind of just uh, pipe down and just accept reality sometimes. Uh. And so this is a real problem. It is a real issue. Uh, so it's very important to remember these little simple things like this. Uh, the Abhidhamma, we don't know who made the Abhidhamma. We don't know where exactly it came from. Uh, the idea of the Abhidhamma is to Uh, systematize the teachings. It is to fill in all the gaps, to make a complete philosophical system out of the teaching of the Buddha. But that's not the point. The Buddha's point is not to make a complete philosophical system. Uh, Yeah, maybe that's impossible. That's not the point of the Buddha. So once we try to do that, we're already moving beyond how the Buddha, the Buddha's outlook and the Buddha's way of looking at the world. The Buddha's teaching is like a psychology. It's about how to develop the mind, how to change ourselves, how to increase in happiness and reduce our suffering in life. That's the purpose of Buddhism. The purpose is not to create some kind of philosophical academic system by, you know, we can feel very satisfied with afterwards. Uh, You're already going astray because of that. Uh, The Buddha had this beautiful saying that you may have heard about in the suttas uh, where he says to the Buddha, uh, they are in the Gosinga grove, which is one of the famous forest groves at the time of the Buddha, and while they're in the Gosinga grove, the Buddha takes a handful of leaves uh, and he says to the monks, what is more the leaves in my hand or all the leaves overhead in the trees? Uh, And the (laughs) It's pretty obvious, yeah, well, overhead there's kind of just a few, lot, lot more than obviously what the Buddha has in his hand. So the monks, they dutifully say, yeah, above, you know, the trees above, many more leaves in your hand, there's only a few. And then the Buddha says that just as there's fewer leaves in my hand compared to the leaves in the trees above, in exactly the same way, the teachings I have taught you are fewer, whereas what I actually know through my own knowledge and understanding is far more just like the leaves overhead and uh, the point is that many of the things that we uh, are interested in, uh, yeah, because uh, of whatever reason, uh, very often got to do with maybe ego and all kinds of things, uh, the reason, things we are interested in, actually, they are irrelevant to the spiritual practice. Uh, and this is what the Buddha is saying here. And those things include philosophy. They include uh, phil- philosophical systems like the Abhidharma, which go way beyond uh, what the Buddha taught uh. So remember that. Come back to the core teachings. Come back to what the Buddha taught. Don't uh, make sure you get things in the right order. The right order means the suttas first, then other teachings afterwards. Yeah. So if you think that I'm talking nonsense, then go back to the suttas, and you say to me, yeah, you don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, the suttas said this, you say that. You're wrong. And I was say, okay, go, go for it. Investigate for yourself. If you think I'm wrong, that's perfectly fine. Uh, the important point here is to get the r- things in the right order to understand what really matters. Uh, I see it as my main point as a Buddhist monastic is actually to explain these suttas. Uh, that to me is the main point. Uh, to, In other words, to bring the word of the Buddha alive and to bring it out to a, a larger audience around the world because it is so, it is so beautiful in its own right. Uh, I don't really it, There's nothing really to be added, as the Buddha says here. Huh? So keep that in mind. It doesn't mean that you cannot read other things. You know, it doesn't mean you cannot read the Jataka tales. Sometimes you can read the Jataka tales too, yeah, because they're quite nice. Yeah, for those of you who come from a Buddhist background, yeah, you're probably kind of, you know, you've been gone well, gone to school, you learned all the Jataka tales, and you think that's Buddhism. And then some someday someone points out to you, actually, that may not be, that is not the core message of Buddhism in the Jatakas. <laughs> Nice stories. Sometimes they have a Buddhist content. Sometimes they don't have Buddhist content. Some of the Jataka tales are anti-Buddhist. Is that right? <laughs> <laughs> is, is there some truth to that, isn't there? You read the Jataka tales, you read the famous Visantra Jataka. Yeah, you all know about the Visantra Jataka? No, okay, some of you don't, uh, because you don't have the Buddhist background. Uh, Visantra Jataka, more, probably the most famous of all the Jataka tales. Uh. And then the Vasantra Jataka is, is the one that is often put up as a play. Yeah. In Do you have that in Sri Lanka as well? It gets put up as a play, yeah. You have that in Sri Lanka, you have it in Thailand. Many of the kind of the Theravadan Buddhist countries, they were put up the Vasantra Jataka, very, very famous. So. And this is the Jataka where this is a past life of the Buddha. Yeah, this is what the Jataka means: past life of the Buddhas. So. And in this Jataka story, here, yeah, the Buddha gives away his children and his wife. Yeah, he gives them away, he doesn't give them away to somebody nice, he gives them away to this grumpy old Brahmin who's going to use them as slaves in his house, basically, or as servants. And this was considered a supreme renunciation and therefore a very kind of a positive thing. But when you think about it, there's nothing Buddhist about that, it's really weird. How can you give away your kids and your wife to a grumpy old man who's going to use them as slaves? It's madness, Yeah, nothing to do with Buddhism. And, uh, and this is how uh, these later stories that were written by later generation of Buddhists, often based on ancient tales that existed in India, this is very likely to have been an ancient Buddhist tale adapted to Buddhist purposes, and then it became part of the Buddhist ideas. And actually it goes against Buddhism, it goes against the ideas of kindness and compassion that you find in the suttas. So this is why we it is actually important to know where to look for uh, the real teachings and only then are you going to be on the right track sometimes. So uh, uh so remember this yeah? there's nothing really uh, there's nothing missing in the buddha sutras it is enough it is a complete program of liberation a complete program to find true happiness in the world and reducing suffering. Yeah? And uh, it is also, if you don't want to go all the way to the end, it is also a partial program as well. Everything is included in there, and so that is the first part of this. The other part is the Buddha says that you cannot deduct anything here. You cannot take anything away and say in this way it will be better. Yeah, this is the other aspect of this. You can't add it. No need to add anything, uh, and also you can't take anything away. And this is another very important part. Yeah, in our modern world sometimes we think that we know better than the Buddha. We know what is true. Yeah, the Buddha is superstitious super, so many superstitions in the Buddhist texts. And of course one of the classical things that you find in the Buddha suttas that people sometimes think of as superstitious is the idea of things like rebirth. Yeah, rebirth, yeah you know, who knows about rebirth doesn't make any sense from a modern perspective. But actually, uh, that is not necessarily true. The modern perspective is often just our own cultural heritage in the modern world. It doesn't actually necessarily say anything about the nature of reality. And uh, so we should be careful with chucking out aspects of Buddhism that are core part of the Buddhist teachings. And rebirth is one of those there are other aspects that are not so core that may have crept in, that occur maybe once or twice in the suttas that are not really essential and that may have been added later on because the suttas, as I said, they have been redacted and edited over a long period of time. But the core things that you find across the board and everywhere are the things that you have to be very careful with. So things like rebirth are actually essential for understanding the Buddhist teachings. If you take out the idea of rebirth, you end up having to rewrite the entire Tipitika and reinterpret everything in an entirely new way. That is how core it is. Yeah, It is kind of found everywhere. I will probably talk more about this later on. Uh, but uh, it means that all the teachings gained a new flavor that it didn't actually have at that time. And you have people in the present day, that's what they do. They write books, uh, and they want to tell you about, you know, how Buddhism should be understood without rebirth. Uh, and they rewrite the whole thing. And they say that uh, things like uh, uh, crave, what did they say? craving is not the cause of suffering. Suffering is the cause of craving. Yeah. <laughs> yeah? This is kind of the thing, sort of thing they say here. Yeah. turning things upside down yeah and then and then they think and this is kind of the new buddhism yeah where everything is kind of turned upside down black becomes white and white becomes black and suffering becomes happiness probably as well (laughs) so this is problematic to say the least so we have to be very careful so this is like a classical example from the contemporary world things that we would like to throw out because we don't think it's important. Uh, Another one that has uh, typically been problematic uh, uh, over a long period of time is, of course, that the idea that we don't need all the eight factors of the Noble Eightfold Path. yeah, very commonly, uh, the last factor is being diminished as not being so important. The idea of samadhi or jhanas or the true stillness on the path uh, not being uh, important, that we can become enlightened or whatever without that is one of those discussions that is always going on. Uh. Uh, but again, it is there, part of the teaching, part of the noble, Eightfold path. You turn, you open up almost any sutta in the entire Tipitaka, and samadhi is right there. Jhanas are there. Samma samadhi. All of these things are talked about all the time. It is a fundamental part of the practice. It is not something that you can throw out. Yeah. And again, an important point. So keep that in mind. Yeah, there's nothing. Uh, there's nothing in the suttas, There's nothing missing in the suttas. Uh, there's nothing extraneous. There's nothing kind of additional in there that is uh, uh, is not actually required. And when I say there's nothing really additional in there, what I mean is that. Um, uh, uh, Of the core teachings, uh, yeah, there's nothing additional of the core teachings. Uh, I don't mean that everything in there necessarily, again, is the word of the Buddha, because it isn't. uh, Because, as I said, things have changed a little bit. There are odd things, odd bits and pieces uh, that sometimes can be shown to have been added later on. uh, But of the core teachings, uh, the the things that are the things that we can say with a fairly high degree of certainty must have been the word of the Buddha himself. uh. So... uh, This is already uh, an important starting point. So, of course, uh, during this retreat, we're only going to look at the actual word of the Buddha. And if you want to uh, expand on that, you want to ask about this, and you want to whatever, then please please do so uh, in the evening time. So, um... So the translation here is sometimes a little bit not ideal, fully successful, imperfect, he, he says here, but really what it means, sabbakada, sampanna means endowed with all qualities, is really what it means. And uh, the other one is sabba, uh, sabba paripura, which means again complete, yeah, not not really perfect. Uh, perfect is a slightly different meaning here. It means it's complete, it has all the aspects to it. Uh, nothing is really missing, is what the meaning is. Uh, this is a uh, Maurice Walsh's translation. Maybe I should have used Ajahn Sujato's translation instead, but uh, anyway, there, there you are. So let us uh, continue. Uh, Therefore, Chunda, all of you to whom I have taught these truths uh, that I have realized my super knowledge uh, should come together and recite them, setting meaning beside meaning and expression beside expression. Uh, without dissension, in order that this holy life may continue and be established for a long time, for the profit and happiness of the many, out a compassion for the world, for the benefit, profit, and happiness of devas and humans. And what are those things that, I, that you should recite together? Let's just stop there and just have a look at that before I look at in more detail what those things actually are uh, so um, here the Buddha talks about the true truths that he has realized. Yeah, and of course those truths that he has realized is essentially about uh, comes down to happiness and suffering in the world, uh, what, where true happiness is to be found uh, and where suffering is to be found. That's really what the Dhamma is all about. Uh, yeah, it's about happiness and suffering and the path uh, to attain more happiness and to reduce suffering. And this is why the Dhamma is about the very meaning of life itself, because this is what we all want. We all want to be happy. We all want to be content. We all want to be, have more kindness and compassion and understanding and love and all of these wonderful things. And we all want to have less suffering and sorrow and lamentation and depression. These are the things we don't want to have. Yeah, so this is really about the essence of what life is all about. And that is why the Buddhist teaching is so powerful, because it gives you a credible path uh, on how to achieve happiness, real, profound, meaningful happiness, uh, also the meaning of life itself, uh, and then the reduction in all the problems in life. Uh. And this is why it is really, this is it, yeah? There's not nowhere else to look. Uh, this is really what life is, is all about, uh. So the truth that he has realized, yeah, the finding of real happiness in the world, uh, it says here by super knowledge, the Pali word is abhinya, which just means really by direct insight or or something like that. And then, of course, uh, uh, these are the things that you should come together and recite, uh, setting meaning beside meaning, and expression beside expression. And uh, uh, this is uh, uh, an important point. Right there, the idea that the Buddha says all the way from the very beginning yeah, that you should come together and recite these things. Uh, the Pali word is Sangiti, and Sangiti literally, literally means common recitation. Yeah, you come meet together as a community, all the monastics coming together. Uh, uh, and then you recite these things. And the idea, of course, is that when you come together as a group, then if one person gets it wrong or has a wrong memory or whatever, then the group coming together will correct that memory. And this is kind of the idea, because you have like a, a group, uh, that the majority will presumably get it right, and individuals who get it wrong, they will be corrected by the group. So this goes back all the way to the time of the buddha this was instituted by the buddha the idea of how to preserve this text in such a way that it could be handed down from one generation to the next one and the message could be kept intact yeah so this actually goes all the way back to the time of the buddha and uh, sometimes people are kind of they are skeptical about whether it is possible to uh, remember and uh, keep a teaching that is two and a half thousand years old uh, and keep it roughly the same over two and a half thousand years. Uh. And uh, But the point to remember here is that uh, uh, there was a very strong oral tradition in India prior to the time of the Buddha. And that oral tradition is a tradition of the Bra- Brahmins. Uh, uh, and the Brahmins, of course, they were... Uh, and learning the vedas the vedas were the brahmanical texts that existed before the time of the buddha and they had existed already for a thousand maybe 1500 years prior to the buddha and we know that those texts were memorized almost verbatim over those centuries and over those millennia before the buddha so there was already a culture of oral recitation and for the brahmins the the, the sound the actual correct Um, memorization was paramount. They had to remember these things verbatim. This was actually part of the idea. So they had developed techniques and ways uh, of remembering things exactly. So when the Buddhists came along, uh, they took on board some of those brahmanical ideas. uh, Part of that would have been communal recitation. uh, Part of that would have been how the uh, suttas were formed in numerical lists and in, in standardized passages and all of these kind of things. Uh, yeah, And they used that ancient technique that already already existed uh, to enable them to remember these things in the right way. Uh. So that skepticism about whether it is possible to remember the suttas, you know, and that happened for the first few centuries after the Buddha, before they were written down, it was just an oral transmission, uh. that skepticism, I think, is not really warranted. Uh. Why not? Because, again, it was part of the culture to remember these things orally. Uh, and here the Buddha is saying that. Uh. So again, it's just another thing that kind of uh, um, gives us reasons to think, gives us some degree of confidence to think that these things uh, uh, have been guarded, have been kept very well over those uh, uh, one, two and a half thousand years of the time of the Buddha. So you come together, you recite, you weed out the problems, uh, and in this way you understand you you keep these things intact and so you set expression uh, beside expression and meaning uh, beside meaning so you uh, as you recite you 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 see whether it is correct or not and of course once the expression is right then the meaning comes out of the expression so the meaning also is often right you then presumably discuss the meaning afterwards uh, after having recited these things And uh, in order that this holy life may continue for a long time in the future uh, for the benefit of happiness and devas. uh. And that is the purpose uh, of the uh, suttas. The purpose of the Buddhist teaching is to be for the happiness of people and devas uh, around the world. This is why they're there. It's a very important thing to remember. And that happiness uh, that you get out of these teachings, uh, you get it only if you practice these teachings properly uh. Yeah, sometimes in Buddhism we have uh, uh, too many kind of uh, intellectual Buddhists, perhaps. Uh, yeah, they sit back in the armchair and they smoke their pipe and they reflect on these teachings. Uh. <laughs> but that is not really actually these days people don't smoke pipes much anymore. But that's what they used to do back in the kind of the you know <laughs> a few decades ago. But that is not really going to help you very much. Yeah? Just to remember to to uh, talk about these things. Uh, uh, you actually need to put them into practice. It's a very important important part of this. Only then uh, do they have the ability to lead to happiness. Uh, when the Buddha taught these teachings, uh, he taught them because he wanted people to be happy. Uh, he taught them out of compassion for people. Yeah, this is the whole purpose of these things. Uh, so if you want to kind of live up to the Buddha's desire, if you want to uh, honor the Buddha's teachings, uh, the only way you can really honor them is by practicing them. Uh, yeah, by keeping precepts, by being kind in the world, by purifying your mind, doing a bit of meditation perhaps, and these kind of things. That is where things really start to come together. And then you start to experience some of the result of results of these teachings. You know, you, you actually get some of the benefits. And then the Buddha will say, Good on you. Yeah? Will he say that? Maybe not, but he will say something like that. <laughs> So uh and that would be pleasing to the Buddha when he sees that people are actually practicing these things correctly. There's a very nice little passage in the Mahaparinibbana Sutta, uh, and in that passage uh uh the, the Buddha uh you know it describes the Buddha's passing away in great detail, and some of it is a bit supernatural, but the Buddha is kind of you know, lying on his, on, the, on his deathbed, is about to pass away, and there's all this music going on, and people are coming to bow down to him, and there's flowers coming down from the trees, and everything is kind of marvelous, and everyone is uh, kind of, you know, grieving a little bit, because the Buddha is about to pass away. And then the Buddha says, this is not how you worship, this is not how you pay respect to the Buddha, by coming here to kind of, you know, with perfume and incense and all of these kind of things. The right way of paying respect to the Buddha is by practicing his teachings, why? Well, because he practices. He, the Buddha teaches because he wants you to practice. Because the only way that you're going to gain the benefit of these teachings is by putting them into life and actually doing accordingly. So if you want to worship the Buddha, forget about the Buddha pujas. Yeah. People love to do Buddha pujas. They come with little little dishes and little kind of food and drinks and they give it to the Buddha statue. Yeah, As if the Buddha statue is going to enjoy that food. Buddha statue cannot enjoy that food. Remember, <laughs> Remember that. I'm being a bit silly now. Of course, sometimes we can do little pujas, uh, because sometimes a little puja can be good for the heart, it makes you feel good. Bowing down can be very good, uh, but we shouldn't take it too far. We should find a balance with these things, uh, and then it becomes useful, and uh, uh, it becomes part of the practice. uh. So now we come to the essence of this. uh. Uh, So these are the teachings that are for the happiness of the world, yes? The teachings that the monastic community should recite together, what are those teachings? And here you are. They are the four focuses of mindfulness, the four right efforts, the four aspects to spiritual power, the five spiritual faculties, the five mental powers, the seven factors of awakening, and the noble eightfold path. These are the things uh, you should recite together. So um, uh, these are the things that the Buddha has realized, uh, yeah. And uh, elsewhere he says that this is really what his teaching is. Uh, if you want to know what the teachings of the Buddha uh, are, then this is really what it is all about: uh, thirty-seven factors of awakening. Uh, um, 37 Bodhipakya damas. And uh, it may sound like a lot of things to remember, 37, uh, but actually it is grouped very nicely there into various groups, uh, yeah? so it is not as hard as you might think. Uh, and uh, what I will show you in a minute is how all of those 37 have a slot very nicely into the Noble Eightfold Path. Uh, so they really are just an expansion of the Noble Eightfold Path. That's what they are, with more details. Uh, that's kind of the purpose of these things uh. And uh, these uh, 37, because they are really just an expansion of the Noble eightfold Path, uh, and if you look at them, the four foundations of mindfulness and right effort and all of this, uh, all of these things are really practical teachings. Uh, yeah? They're all about the things that we are supposed to do as Buddhists, how we are supposed to live. Uh, that is what they are all about. They are pragmatic, uh, how to put these things into practice uh, And this is something that is uh, very obvious when you start reading the word of the Buddha. There is very little theory there. There's very little kind of just ideas to kind of put into your head. Most of it has a practical bearing, a practical orientation. It's about how to live, how to make these things actually happen. This is what this is about. Yeah, so... uh, it's, again, it's a very important thing to remember because it makes you realize why we are Buddhists, what the point of being a Buddhist is. The point of being a Buddhist is not to be born a Buddhist and to then to call yourself a Buddhist. That doesn't really do very much. The point is to apply these things in your life and then they start to come alive. And that is why uh, the Buddha's message is very practical and very pragmatic. And it actually contains very little uh, uh, just ideas or philosophy or, or uh, things that don't have a practical bearing. Uh, but it's not just practical. Yeah? It's important to remember also that, uh, also that there actually is some um, content which is not directly practical. And the reason for that is because any practice, any path that you want to do, it only makes sense in a theoretical context. We have to understand why we are practicing the path. We have to understand where it leads, what the purpose of this is. And only if you have a framework for the path, does it actually come become alive. Does it doesn't make sense. Yeah, you have to kind of understand what it is all about. And so this is also part of these 37, this idea of why we are doing this. What is the outlook? What is the way of looking at the world that actually makes... Uh, this path come alive and makes this path to make sense. And uh, if you look at those 37 very carefully, you will see that there are a few aspects that are are of a more theoretical nature as part of these 37 parts. And one of those more theoretical aspects is obviously the first factor of the Noble Eightfold Path, right view. Yeah, right view is, is a certain outlook, a certain way, which gives rise to certain values, etc. That is kind of the uh, foundation stone here that makes everything else make sense. And this is why right view is at the beginning of the Noble Eightfold Path, and therefore also stands at the outset of the entire set of 37 Bodhipakya Dhammas. Because without that right view, the entire path doesn't really make any sense. You don't know what you're doing. You don't know why you're doing these things. So there is a theory, there is some degree of theory also involved in this and uh, you may wonder about teachings such as the five khandhas, for example. What have they got to do with this? Uh, and the five khandas are really just part of that right outlook. Uh, it's a way of looking at the world. Yeah? It's about suffering, etc. Uh, five khandas, five aspects of personality, you might call them. Uh, I should actually translate these Pali words. Uh, please remind me if I don't translate, because sometimes as a monk you become a bit... Uh, you think everyone knows Pali after a while, but that's usually not not quite right? Uh, So, five khandas, yeah, the six sense spaces, we have things like dependent origination, which may seem like a very theoretical teaching, that is also part of the practical aspect of the path here. Where is it? Well, if you think about the, uh, the... Right view, right view is uh, the four noble truths, uh, the four noble truths, the second one is the origin of suffering, the third one is the end of suffering, uh, the origin of suffering is dependent origination, the end of suffering is dependent cessation, yeah? two things coming together. So it's right there as part and parcel of the Noble Eightfold Path and the 37 uh, Bodhipakya Dhammas. Uh, so it all comes together in this and they all have a practical bearing, uh, which is uh, uh, a, a very important point of this. Uh, uh so and then as i mentioned before all of these 37 they actually come together in the noble eightfold path which is kind of handy it makes it easy to remember and the noble eightfold path can be said to come together in the uh in the uh, uh sila samadhi panya yeah in in uh, morality meditation and wisdom so that's kind of what what the noble eightfold path is so it can be kind of reduced down to something even more simple yeah, so we can reduce and expand these things in various ways. Uh, and this is kind of one of the uh, nice things about the suttas, different angles, different expansions. Uh, so sometimes all you need to remember are some very simple things. Uh, and then when you study it in more detail, you can expand it out uh, to see all the details. Uh, of course, 37 is just another really fairly random number. You could expand it much more than that. You could probably have, you know, sometimes they say the Buddha had 84,000 teachings. Uh, Yeah, but you can see 84,000 becomes a little bit too much for most people, so it's handy to kind of reduce it down to something more simple. So uh, 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 that is how it kind of, this is just one way of looking at the the path, the 37. Now how, so if it is true that these 37 really reduce down to the Noble Eightfold Path, uh, how does that actually happen here? So let's have a quick look at how that happens. And so, first of all here, we have the four applications of mindfulness. Yeah, I should say straight away that four foundations of mindfulness is not really a satisfactory translation because foundation of mindfulness implies that you do these things to give rise to mindfulness. But actually, you don't use Satipatthana or or Sammasati or right mindfulness to give rise to mindfulness. You use it to... Uh, you apply mindfulness. This is really the purpose of this. Uh, you apply it. Mindfulness has already arisen and then you apply it in certain areas. Uh, and this is one of the reasons why I was saying yesterday, I was talking about meditation practice last night, uh, is the um, one of the most important things is not... Uh, Uh, is is actually not the meditation itself, uh, but all the preparation that we do as we enter into meditation practice. Uh, When you sit down, get all the basic things right, uh, and as you get all the basics right, uh, then the meditation tends to happen automatically as a consequence. Yeah. So, and again, this is precisely one of those reasons you have to have mindfulness established first of all. Then you apply it. So the four applications of mindfulness, and of course those four applications of mindfulness, they are just the seventh factor of the Noble Eightfold Path, Sammasati. That's what they are. Yeah. So it actually slots right in to the seventh factor of the Noble Eightfold Path. Then you have the four right efforts, the Samma Padana. Uh, and they, of course, are equivalent to the six-factor of the Noble Eightfold Path. So it slots in right there. Then we have uh, the four aspects of uh, uh, spiritual power, the four iddipadas. Uh, here they're called the four roads to power. Uh, uh, and uh, what these are, these are particular ways of approaching samadhi practice yeah we will have a quick look at them later on because it's kind of the purpose of this retreat we're going to look at all of these things but these are really about how to establish samadhi using effort using mindfulness in the right way then giving rise to samadhi as a consequence so these four they kind of they fit in to the last three factors of the noble eightfold path then we have the five spiritual faculties, uh, uh, and also the five mental powers, uh, and these two sets are roughly equivalent to each other, Uh, don't really need to make any distinction between the two, so this kind of reduces to one set of five. uh, And uh, uh, these uh, five spiritual powers, uh, they are just a particular way of looking at the Noble Eightfold Path. uh. Yeah, when Once you become a stream-enter, once you have real insight into the teachings of the Buddha, then what happens is that certain qualities become established in your mind. It's like now you have, be- you have become changed, you become a different person. Because seeing these teachings actually has a profound psychological impact on you. And that profound psychological impact means that now these faculties, they are lodged in your psychological makeup and you can't really get rid of them anymore. Yeah? You have confidence in the Buddha's teachings because you have seen it. And because you have seen it, all the other factors of the path tend to be there, arise automatically as a consequence. Yeah, so this is the uh, the five faculties. These are the Noble Eightfold Path uh, viewed from the point of view of the Noble Ones, the aryas, uh, those who have insight into these teachings. Uh, I will talk, I'm just giving you a very rough idea now how these things come together, uh, uh, but I will of course talk about these things in much more detail later on. Uh. Then we have the seven factors of awakening. Uh, uh, and uh, these are uh, these seven factors, they are roughly equivalent to the last two factors of the Noble Eightfold Path. Uh, the seven factors of awakening begin with Sati Sambhojanga, the factor of awakening that is Sati, mindfulness, uh, and it ends with the Upeka Sambhojanga. Upeka m- meaning the uh, equanimity or evenness of mind factor of awakening. Yeah. And uh, evenness of mind or uh, uh, or equanimity is the last is what is the comes with the fourth jhana the very end of samadhi. This actually arises uh, out of that, uh. so they start with sati and they end with uh, samadhi. So they are an expansion of the last two factors of the noble eightfold path. Yeah, and it gives you all the details in between the last two factors of the path. Uh. They are a very beautiful set, uh, and they are a set that. Uh, uh, is uh, reflected in many other teachings in the suttas as well. So actually, they are very important. These seven factors of awakening—they are what lead you to awakening in the final uh, analysis or in the final sense. And then we have the noble eightfold path itself, uh, yeah, which then uh, uh, kind of um, uh, rounds out the uh, these thirty-seven factors. And these are the things you should recite together. So, uh, uh, there you are. That's the 37 factors. Now, uh, it is useful to analyze these a little bit to see what are the main ingredients in these 37 factors. Uh, Yeah, it may not be... Uh, It is not obvious perhaps, uh, but once you start to analyze these things and you kind of pull them apart uh, and you put all the 37 factors in like one long list uh, to see what is in there, uh, it actually starts to stand out what are the most important aspects of these things. uh. And uh, the most important aspects, the kind of factors that occur the most times uh, are effort. uh, Yeah, Effort and energy uh, is one of those very important ones. You, You find it in the uh, noble Eightfold Path, of course. Uh, you find it in the uh, 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 spiritual faculties and the spiritual powers. Uh, you find it in the four right efforts, of course. Uh, yeah. Uh, so you find, and you also find it in the seven sambhogakas as energy. Uh, so you find it seven or eight times, uh, right there, of these thirty-seven things. Uh, so right effort is an important one. Uh, another one is. Uh, Right mindfulness, yeah, mindfulness. Again, you find it a number of times. You have the four uh, applications of mindfulness, uh, and then you have it in the spiritual powers and the mental powers. You have it in the awakening factors, and you have it, of course, in the noble eightfold path. So again, a large number of times. And the last one that you find throughout this is samadhi. Yeah, samadhi being again found as part of the four roads to power, or the four uh, factors of sp- of spiritual power. Uh, you find it in the faculties, uh, you find it in the five powers, uh, you find it in the awakening factors, uh, and you find it in the Noble Eightfold Path. Uh, yeah, So all the way through. And so these three things uh, are the three most important ones in the 37 factors of awakening. Uh, effort. Uh, Mindfulness and samadhi, stillness. These three are what kind of are the themes that run through the thirty-seven factors of awakening here, and so what does that mean? Why is that interesting? And the reason why that is interesting is that those three factors, they are all about the development of the mind. Right effort is about how to think in the right way, how to overcome the unwholesome states, how to establish mindfulness so we can use mindfulness to follow the meditation object, and eventually how to achieve samadhi itself. And because these are the most important part of these 37, it means that this is really the essence of what the Buddhist teaching is about. It is a teaching about the development of the mind. That is really what comes out of this. So what does it mean that it is a teaching about the development of the mind? Well, it means it is a kind of a psychology. Yeah? It is a psychology, but a practical psychology on how to use the mind in the right way so as to increase the good qualities in our minds and decrease the bad ones. This is the essence of the Buddhist teachings, yeah, it is really a kind of psychology, as I mentioned before, but a psychology that has a particular purpose and a particular outcome in terms of changing ourselves uh, and becoming different human beings. Uh, of course, there are other parts of the Buddhist teaching as well. There are in a, like the uh, sila, like the ordinary kind of good conduct, and all of this is also part of this. Uh, and it matters. There are things like right view uh, and all of these things. Uh, uh, but uh, the essence of the teaching is how to use the mind, how to develop the mind, is really what this is about. Uh, okay, um, so uh, I think that is all I want to say about those 37 Bodhipakya now. Uh, and uh, I will come back to all of these ones, all of these various sets uh, in much more detail uh, as we go through this retreat. Uh, and uh, uh, hopefully then it will become more clear to you how to how this can be used in practice uh, and how it all kind of fits together with the path as we carry on. Uh. Uh, but I think I will stop there because it's pretty much uh, 9.30 already, uh, uh, and uh, then we come back again for the next session at around 3 3pm 3 so see you back again at 3pm